The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. In your headlines this hour, U.S. stocks falter with both the S&P 500 and the Dow closing below their 50-day moving averages. All eyes on today's U.S. inflation print, with CPI forecast at its highest level since 1981. The U.S. orders all non-essential staff to leave its Shanghai consulate as China's largest city fights its worst COVID outbreak since the start of the pandemic. Mercedes-Benz pledges to have emissions by the end of the decade as chairman Ola Kalenius tells CNBC exclusively that the geopolitics-driven spike in energy prices is an important lesson for the continent. What are the sources? How do we make sure that we become more energy and independent and have very secure sources for the future? It's not something that can be changed overnight, uh, but um, I think this has been a wake-up call for, uh, for Europe. And OPEC producers tell the EU it would be almost impossible to replace Russian crude volumes, with the cartel warning further sanctions on Moscow could create one of the worst supply shocks ever. Well, good morning and a very warm welcome to Squawk Box. Let's kick off the show with a look at yesterday's trading session. It was a down day for U.S. equities, a pretty sizable pullback across the majors. The Dow Jones ending more than 400 points lower. The S&P 500 dropped about 1.7% with all sectors negative in the session, led to the downside by energy stocks. The tech-heavy Nasdaq suffering the worst of the losses, down about 2.2%. Now, all of these uh, pullbacks that we saw in U.S. Equities came as the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield spiked to its highest level in three years. So this is a look at where we stand right now heading into today's trading session. The U.S. 10-year trading around 2.816%. The two-year out toward the front end of the curve trading around 2.53%. Now, the focal point for investors today and the bracing that we saw yesterday in, in, in U.S. markets, the CPI for the month of March. The U.S. CPI report is due later today. Today. So a huge amount of focus on that. And the question um, whether uh, the, the question of how high inflation is running and then, of course, the Federal Reserve, to what extent interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve will be able to rein in inflation and when a key part of the market narrative right now. Now, the commodity p- complex yesterday also came under some selling pressure with oil dropping the most. Here's a look at where we stand right now. A little bit of a bounce back. WTI up about 1.7% this morning to $95.89 a barrel. Brent trading exactly at $100 a barrel, up 1.5% today. But I mentioned yesterday the pullback that we saw in the commodity space. Uh, the Asian region firmly in focus, China in particular, with economists and oil market watchers pricing 
pricing in a pullback in Chinese demand as the country battles its worst COVID outbreak since Wuhan back in early 2020. This is the picture for Asian equity markets. The Shanghai Composite pulling back about 0.7% in the overnight session. More losses for the Hang Seng over in Hong Kong. That index is down about 1% right now. Nikkei 225 down 1.9%. So pretty heavy selling in the Japanese market as well. Opening calls for Europe. Let's take a look at how the European session is shaping up. Yesterday, we saw some interesting outperformance from the CAC 40. Nothing major, but interesting to see in the wake of the first round voting results in France. This morning, we are looking at red across the board. The DAX is the standout right now. The DAX is indicated at uh, more than 200 points lower at the open. FTSE 100 looking at a weak start as well. The CAC 40 looking at a pullback and the FTSE MIB looking at about a 300 point drop at the open today. So clearly there are some jitters entering the market this morning as we brace for that U.S. CPI report and also digest the latest coming out of China on the COVID front. Those are two particular focus points for markets. And finally, U.S. futures. Let's see how Wall Street is shaping up. We've got red across the board there as well. All three majors looking at a weaker start to the trading session. So extending the losses that we saw yesterday, triple digit worth of losses for the Dow Jones indicated at this point, Jeff. Good to see you this morning. Very good to see you. Let's, Thanks for having me back. Well, it's, it's going to be fascinating today, isn't it? Very interesting moves on the markets here, and we need to get some analysis. We'll do that in just a moment with Didier Dure. But let me just fill in some of the other backstory here. Chicago Federal Reserve President Char- uh, Charles Evans uh, says a 50 basis point rate hike is now, quote, highly likely at the central bank's next meeting in early May. Evans, who is no longer a voting member of the FOMC, added that a more rapid move towards the Fed's neutral rate setting of around 2.5% would allow policymakers to have a more accurate assessment of inflation risks. Speaking at an event in Detroit, Evans warned that raising rates too quickly might limit the Fed's options in future. U.S. consumer prices for March could hit levels not seen since 1981, with analysts expecting a more than 1% rise on the month to an 8.4% year-on-year gain. The rising costs of food, energy and rent are contributing to price pressures. Core inflation, excluding food and energy, is expected to rise only a half a percentage point to 6.5% year-on-year. Well, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says... While President Biden's administration expects higher rates, it doesn't believe the country is at risk of falling into recession. We, of course, continue to assess um, our, the state of our economy, the health of our economy. Um, that's not a projection we have made from here. Uh, we believe that the economy is strong. Uh, we have created more jobs last year than any year in American history. We saw the unemployment rate at 3.6% uh, last month. And we know that as we're com- continuing uh, through an economic recovery, that there are areas that we need to focus on, including bringing down costs for the American people. Jen Saki there. Well, let's get to Didier Dure, who joins us this morning with the analysis. He's chairman of the board at Omega Wealth Management. Um, Didier, how excited about stocks are you at the moment, given the continued pressure we've seen over recent days to exit equity markets? Uh, good morning, Joel. Nice to be in the show. Uh, there is a strong case for equities because they represent an inflation hedge. Now, if you are looking, the real yield in U.S. is minus 5. It's minus 5.1 in U.K. 
So it's accelerating the TINA. There is no alternative on that. And, but you, you have to respect conditions. Uh, for that, you need to stick to companies that have durable pricing power and avoid uh, the companies that have pricing power uh, that can also, at a point in time, kill the demand. So for that, I think it's more focusing on the value part of the business uh, with strong brands and with price earning below 15, price earning to growth around one. And you have to remember that in the 70s, uh, these companies were really outperforming by three times uh, the market. And it's uh, reported by Kenneth, uh, Kenneth French, you know, on his famous studies. Besides that, I think many things are already discounted in the market. Markets are miles ahead. We might see short-term volatility. That's fine. But we, uh, the markets are really bracing for higher inflation. Inflation can go very close to 10% in many countries because of the second round effect. We have a magnified stagflation. It's worse than the COVID because the fiscal stimulus can come too late, especially in Europe. U.S. can avoid recession. And China has the advantage of once the death valley of the COVID is behind, they have the policy uh, to, to be put in place in order to rekindle the economy. So we think that there is still a strong case for uh, equities as inflation, but we need to be careful on the companies. Didier, the pairs would come back at you and say there is an alternative. It's called cash and it's somewhere where you go when you have a lack of visibility about the near-term outlook. And the problem this time around is, yes, I agree, corporates can manage inflation and a lot of them can actually do well passing that through with a modest increase to improve margins. But we've got inflation and we've got weakening economic growth here, which probably means that earnings growth is going to get more troublesome towards the latter part of the year. Um, how do you take that on board as you figure that it's still worth remaining in risk assets? Uh, of course, but uh, as, as you put it, you know, the cash is, is an issue at the moment. But the thing is, the value companies represent an anchor uh, in terms of valuation, in terms of cash as well. I think that's the cash generating capacities of the com companies that will, um, that will uh, count. The cash you cannot get into the, uh, the, the fixed interest. You will get it through the companies. You will get it through the accumulated earnings. Of course, the earnings are, will not be as strong, but I think in the U.S., uh, they are preserved in certain ways uh, respective to Europe. And, uh, but we have also to consider that uh, there are also other alternatives, and it's called CTAs, because they are a superb diversifier. Um, in fact, they are able to play uh, really uh, nicely the disruption and the long and the short part of the, of the commodity market. And they have behaved very well uh, during the war, the, the worst moment in the war in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, so I think there is a case. We need to focus on the, on the medium term anyway to invest into uh, the long term. And this is simply uh, a, a valley that we, we need to go through. But in, in a matter of years, the equities, it's an opportunity to capture some companies. 
Um, Didier, I'm curious in your take on the growth outlook across different countries. You've got um, central banks moving at very different paces across the world. Um, The ECB obviously lagging the Federal Reserve. Then you've got some places like China, which are still embarking on um, supportive monetary policy. And we're expecting even more now that the COVID situation has deteriorated. Um, How are you thinking about the regional split at this stage? Of course, there is a huge uh, discrepancies between the region. That's why it's it's, it's very important to uh, to move away from uh, from Europe and and focus on China and and the U.S. at the moment. Uh, uh, and I think the the volatility is much higher in uh, in in Europe than in the uh, U.S. It's about thirty in Europe, twenty in U.S. It's a really a, a low to mild level of volatility uh, in. Uh, in, in, in the U.S. So that's probably a safer place to be. Um, and Didier, when it comes to inflation hedges, I mean, there was so much talk among the Bitcoin bull community that Bitcoin was going to be an excellent inflation hedge. It was one of the key points from proponents of Bitcoin to get involved. Yet we are seeing now Bitcoin trade below $40,000 um, in the lead up to the day when we're expecting this massive inflation print stateside. Um, what do you make of that argument and Bitcoin as an inflation hedge? Is that a whole argument dead? Yes. So far, I think the Bitcoin has been a, a rather deceptive trade. If you look at the performance year to date, it's minus 15, not counting the, the close of yesterday. The, the, the reality is that the Bitcoin is really a high beta on the, on the U.S. market. And that's, uh, it, it's not even um, following the, you know, covering the inflation. But besides that, it's a risk on asset. So I think there is limited correlation on that. Really, this year will be the year of making it or, 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 or disappearing or, or for that purpose of inflation hedge uh, vis-a-vis the Bitcoin. Didier, let me ask you specifically about um, recession risk in Europe, given the high and rising cost of replacing Russian energy. Yes, I think it's uh, it creates a big reallocation of the energy spectrum for Europe. And it will take more time than the pace that we have on, 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 on the demand that is really affected by that. So there is a risk, a genuine risk of, of, of recession in Europe. The problem is that uh, the fiscal stimulus will probably come too late. There are some subsidies vis-à-vis the energy, but it will not make it and it will affect very heavily the balance of the consumer and, and the companies will be highly affected. It's possible that we see inflation rate hovering around 10% in Europe because the second round effects are still in the making. For that reason, it remains, you know, a very, let's say, difficult place for, from the growth perspective. Inflation hovering around 10% certainly would be a change of pace from what we're used to. Um, Didier, thank you for joining us this yes. morning and sharing your, your thoughts. Didier Dure, Chairman of the Board at Omega Wealth Management. Now on to some key macro data out overnight. Japanese March wholesale prices are near record levels after hitting 9.5% year on year, ahead of most expectations. The index, which measures how much companies pay each other for goods, hit a record high in February with yen weakness playing a major role in propping up import prices.
Over to China, the Security Regulatory Commission has said it will encourage long-term funds and institutional investors to allocate capital to the country's equities in an attempt to stabilize markets. The state body has said it will improve finance mechanisms, support deal activity, and potentially invest in undervalued stocks. The U.S. has ordered all non-emergency consular staff in Shanghai to leave to leave as much of the city remains in lockdown amid a surge in coronavirus cases. The U.S. State Department has also urged citizens against traveling to China, citing the country's, quote, arbitrary enforcement of restrictions as part of its zero COVID strategy. Let's get out to Sam, who joins us now with more on the latest out of China. Sam, this headline out of the U.S. State Department is certainly grabbing attention this morning. Morning. How significant is this move from the U.S. State Department? Um, and what have they said is the basis, their chief concern when it comes to Shanghai? Is it really the COVID situation or, or simply the logistics of um, that come with a city that's locked down? Good morning to you, Juliana. Well, I think it's a combination of both because, of course, we have heard of a number of foreign businesses and governments uh, certainly raising concern about the logistical challenges on the ground there and the impacts that that is having on their companies and how they are operating, but also the human cost of this, as we have heard some pretty distressing stories about families being separated because either the child or the parent has tested positive and that has meant that a child has gone to a quarantine facility, but also these really concerning stories about uh, limited food supplies and really the difficulties of getting these daily necessities. So we've now seen the U.S. government now ordering its non-emergency workers and also their families to actually leave the consulate in Shanghai really as those cases continue to climb. And we have seen the city keeping these tight measures in place to be able to try to control them. It was interesting because the U.S. officials had originally said some workers could volunteer to leave, but they've now said that this is a mandatory decision. So we have seen a change of tune certainly come from the authorities. But as you say, we've also seen this advisory uh, really uh, suggesting that uh, uh, they should reconsider traveling to China. And this is over what they call uh, arbitrary enforcement of local laws and COVID restrictions. As I said, after some pretty distressing stories that we've heard about, China has hit back at this uh, and any sort of accusations at its policy. It has said that this uh, is groundless. Chinese authorities have been adamant about keeping this dynamic zero COVID strategy in place, they call it, which is what they say is not a zero tolerance, but more about pinpointing positive cases and actually removing them from the transmission chain. But this is interesting because this US move actually comes despite now these developments over in Shanghai, where we are hearing them actually easing off on some of these lockdowns. Guys, back to you. Sam, um, I'm curious how the public is feeling about these latest measures. You talk to experts um, about what motivates President Xi Jinping and, and the party and its social stability and the, the view being that the, the major potential shift in strategy will only come if there is you know, major public backlash to these measures. How, how are people in Shanghai feeling about the latest restrictions? 
That's a really good question, Juliana, and particularly because this was already a typically very conservative year, given that we are going into that big 20th Party Congress, which will be held in October, November, uh, later on in the year. And this is where uh, President Xi Jinping, of course, will be very likely securing that third term as president after he, of course, dropped those presidential term limits back in 2018. And so, as you pointed out, and very right, so we do know that social stability uh, really is fundamentally at the core of the Communist Party. So what we are seeing now, um, which is taking place in Shanghai, is a lot of anger, a lot of fear, a lot of frustration coming from uh, residents who've been taking to platforms like Weibo over in China, which is their Twitter-like social media platform, really venting uh, the, their, their concern about what is going on here. And of course, this is a country where we know that sensitive topics like these are often censored and we have seen the censors being very quick uh, to jump on this but of course this is just really a growing chorus of frustration that we are seeing in Shanghai not just from foreigners which we typically hear from but also locals on the ground as well back to you terrific Sam thank you so much for that still to come on the program then Mercedes-Benz unveils its latest sustainability goals as chairman Ola Kalinas tells us uh, that Europe's energy crisis has made the road to carbon neutrality more critical than ever. We'll bring you that exclusive interview next. And for more on markets ahead of today's U.S. inflation print, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to the program. U.S. investment fund Blackstone and the Benettons will set out a takeover offer for Italian infrastructure group Atlantia this week. That's according to Reuters sources. Blackstone and the Benetton's holding company, Edizione, which already controls 33% of Atlantia, will create a new company to launch the offer. The Benetton's will have full uh, have the majority stake of the new company, with Blackstone holding the rest. BASF has posted a surprise drop in first quarter profit. The, this says its oil and gas unit counted 1.1 billion euros in impairments over the abandoned Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia, which it co-funded. Now, first quarter net income at the German chemicals giant will now come in at just over 1.2 billion euros down from the almost 1.8 billion euro figure forecast by analysts. Mercedes-Benz has vowed to halve its carbon emissions by the end of the decade, providing a midway target in its goal to become net zero by 2039. At its ESG conference, the German carmaker also announced more than two-thirds of its production energy needs will be sourced from renewables. The chairman, Ola Kalinas, told CNBC in an exclusive interview that the carmaker is fully invested in the transition towards decarbonization, but admitted it's still finding the best longer-term cost strategy. 
to go into full decarbonization is something that has a cost element to it. There is no doubt. And as you have seen over the last couple of years in our financial presentations, we're going into this transformation open-eyed where we will have pressure on our variable cost. And some of that needs to be compensated on work on the fixed cost and also your investment side of the business. So you have to find a balance. Whereas we're investing at a higher level than ever before, we're also pushing efficiency even more than before. We cannot take for granted that every cost increase that you have on the variable side can be just easily passed on. Well, as you can see, Aneta conducted that interview and joins us now with more. Aneta, how complicated is the withdrawal of Russian energy from the German market going to make this transition process for Mercedes-Benz? I think for Mercedes, it's not just about the oil or the Russian energy, but of course, the energy prices, um, which are soaring, not only in Germany, are an issue for the company as well. Part of that strategy is also relying on boosting their renewable capacities. Um, I think it's by 2030, they want to have 70 percent of their energy need produced uh, more or less independently through renewable energies, but also, of course, through contracts uh, contracts with um, uh, with utilities um, when it comes to renewable energies. But yes, um, commodities especially, and the scarcity of commodity potentially, um, which is going to worsen uh, with the crisis in Russia and the war in Ukraine, that is an issue for the company. But they are also working on uh, securing their own commodity um, pipeline. Perhaps we listen in what you have to say about that, uh, whether they really go into um, even investing in mines in order to secure their commodity needs, especially when it comes to the electrification of the vehicles. We could see already in the second half of last year that in some commodities that pricing was uh, moving up uh, due to some shortages and maybe also the uh, effects that we have had uh, through two years of pandemic And with the war breaking out in Ukraine, uh, some of these materials became a a focus point on the commodity markets, nickel being one. Every company has put together a comprehensive sourcing strategy for the future, and so have we uh, already before this conflict. But I think this highlights uh, how fragile this uh, global commodity uh, framework can be. And what I think is needed next to Uh, industries and companies like ours putting together their own raw material strategy. We need uh, need a comprehensive one also on a European level, European and on a German level, uh, which is similar to what is done in the other major economic regions such as China and North America, where the governments themselves also look strategically at raw material sourcing. This is a field where I believe um, industry and uh, government need to work hand in hand and uh, really think it through, what does it look five or 10 years from now? Do you think that also should take place when it comes to energy security? Because clearly that's one of the main issues as well for the industry. You might not be very much reliant on gas, but you still are reliant on energy prices, right? Energy security, particularly for Europe and for Germany, has been uh, uh, very much uh, a topic since the war uh, broke out. And something that we had just uh, taken for granted, it's now suddenly a discussion. And I uh, observed that both the European Union and Germany uh, 
is uh, at a rapid pace uh, putting together a strategy to, on the one hand, promote diversification and accelerate the pace into renewable energy, which is the path that we need to take anyway, but at the same time also look at uh, what are the sources, how do we make sure that we become more energy and independent and have uh, very secure sources for the future. It's not something that can be changed overnight. Uh, but um, I think this has been a wake-up call for uh, for Europe. So it's not only about the scarcity of potential commodities which go into the batteries and other parts of the vehicles, but it's also about the labor conditions which are attached to certain commodities such as cobalt. So what they're also doing, they're trying to, not only trying, they're working on um, creating batteries, for example, which will be which will be possible also without cobalt because cobalt is one of those commodities which is quite yeah difficult to secure um, under the ESG rules. So there are various moving parts, but one thing is clear in that transformation phase, it will become more costly to produce cars. And that's what he was pointing out in a different part of the interview as well, that of course they need to work on their fixed costs because the variable costs will go up with uh, the push into climate neutrality um, when it comes to producing cars. But that is something the whole industry is facing. So the key question is whether those cars will get even more expensive in the future or whether they can really reduce the fixed costs and keep the pricing. Because for now, Ola Colenius is also saying that demand for their product is so high that they really can push into that luxury segment even further. And they're not concerned about an economic downturn, which I was actually astonished about as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC. <laughs>